Chapter forty seven of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter forty seven. The operator shut off his engine, but the propeller still swirled at a speed that made them only a whirl of light. The witnesses were paralyzed by the horror of the moment. Tom Holby broke from a nightmare that outran the immediate beauty of the little woman walking forward to a hideous fate. He ran and dived for her like a football tackler, hooked his left arm about her knees, and flung her backward, thrusting his right arm and his head beneath her, so that when she struck her shoulders were upon his breast. Her drenched hair fell across his face like seaweed. She opened her eyes in a chaos of bewilderment. Just above her the flying propeller blades were glistening in the light of the sun arc. They were still revolving when the wind-machine man, leaping from the post where he had stood expecting her fate and his own eternal remorse, ran to lift her from the ground. Others helped up Tom Holby. He had knocked himself unconscious when his head struck a rock in the road. His cheek was ripped and gushing blood. He came to his senses at once and forced a ghastly laugh. Mem screamed with fear for him. She had not yet realized her own escape. She was all pity for Tom Holby and anxiety. It's nothing, he said. Then he staggered with dread of what Mem would have looked like now if he had waited an instant longer or missed his aim at her knees. He drew her from the vortex of the propeller, which was subsiding with the dying snarl of a leopard that has missed its pounce. Now Mem understood what her own adventure had been, and her knees weakened with an ex post facto alarm. Kendrick came up, and after a decent wait for the incident to have its dignity and move on, he thanked and congratulated Holby on retrieving the girl from massacre. It wouldn't have meant only the horrible death of this beautiful child, but it would have meant also the horrible death of this beautiful picture, for hardly anybody would have wanted to see it if it were stained with blood. "'And all my beautiful art would have perished with me,' said Mem, with only partial irony. She had reached the estate of the creative soul, who longs for the immortality of its work more than itself, and feels it a death indeed, a death entire, to have its record lost. Just to have a book in a library, even if it is never read, just to have a painting on some wall, a tune in somebody's ears, a scientific discovery recorded somewhere, that is honey enough in the ashes that fill the mouth of the moratory. Kendrick's next thought was one of dismay. Tom Holby had not yet fought his big fight, and yet his face was torn. How was this to be explained in the preceding scene where he was supposed to leave the arms of his sweetheart in her defense? In the topsy-turvydom of film construction, the scene in which Mem and Tom Holby were set upon by a pack of ruffians had not yet been taken, though Mem had already almost completed the scenes in which she ran to call distant strangers to Tom's rescue. After a long while of puzzling, Kendrick decided to make an effort to photograph Holby so that his damaged jowl should be hidden by Mem's face or by shadows. It would be hard to manage, and the men who had promised to beat Holby up to the best of their ability would hesitate to pummel a man already so hurt. But to put the fight off till the cheek was healed would cost the company a thousand dollars at least. When Mem understood all the trouble it had cost to snatch her from destruction, she said, I'm not worth it. 
Kendrick was in no mood for polite denials, but Tom Holby gave her a look that made the fishing worthwhile. Mem was blanketed like a racehorse and taken to her dressing room once more. She slipped her wet clothes off and dried them and herself by the fire while she waited for the next foray into the storm. After that was to come the attack by the desperados and her flight for help. She had seen many pictures in which the heroine stood about wringing her hands idly while her lover fought for her with some worthless brute. She had always despised a heroine who would not take up a chair or something and bash in the head of her lover's opponent instead of playing the wallpaper. She protested now against having to run away from the scene, but Kendrick grew a trifle sarcastic. The company doesn't require you to rewrite the scenarios, Miss Stedden, only to act in them. Besides, there are half a dozen villains here, and I really think you'd better run out of the scene, seeing that we've already spent half the night, and all of our nerves showing you going for rescuers. Mem was sufficiently snubbed, and apologized so meekly that Kendrick was still furious. And for God's sake, don't play the worm. The story is rotten, and your criticism is perfectly just, but we poor directors and actors have to do our best with the putrid stuff the office hands us. Mem stood about and watched the fight. It was a magnificent or a loathsome spectacle, according to the critic. When Virgil describes an old-fashioned battle with wooden boxing gloves macerating the opposing features, it is accepted as of epic nobility. The movies give the real blood instead of nouns and knock out teeth with primeval dentistry. The actors who assaulted Holby were tender of his raw cheek at first, but both he and Kendrick demanded action, and after Holby had smashed a few noses with the effect of knocking corks out of claret bottles, there was anger enough. The one caution Kendrick shrieked through his megaphone was not to knock Holby senseless and not to knock him out of the camera's range. The cameramen were tilting and panning their machines to keep the action within the picture, and they were howling contradictory messages to the fighters. There was none of the arena ardor in Mem's soul. She was none of the girls who watched gladiators butchered, or thrilled to inquisitional processions, or went to modern prize fights. She was so sickened by the noise of the blows and the spurt of blood, and that most desperate drama of all, when strong men batter each other in rage, that she had to retreat into the cold morning air, out of sight and hearing of the buffets that seemed to land on her own tender flesh. The dawn was just pinking the sky when the last of the night work was over. Everybody was dead beaten. The crews would have to remain after the actors had gone, and the actors had finished a twenty-one-hour day of grilling emotion and physical toil. The chauffeur who took Mem home in an automobile told her that he had already had twenty-four hours of driving and would have four or five hours more. She expected him to collide with almost anything, but his eyes still attended their office. It was seven o'clock when Mem crept into her bed an hour later than she had usually wakened. Her alarm clock stared at her with rebuke, but she gave it a day off and slept till nightfall. The next day, the company gathered to see the rushes of the night stuff. Almost all of them were perfect, vivid, dramatic, with the chiaroscuro of lightning upon midnight storm and incredibly real. A strange feeling came over her and over the others when they saw the various takes of the scene in which she clambered across the fallen telephone pole, pushed through the branches of the toppled tree, and pressed on into the teeth of the gale. 
for just beyond the point of her exit from the picture the wind machine was waiting she had been hurrying headlong to destruction and never dreamed of her peril kendrick sighed that came near being a portrait of you walking out of this world tom holby did not speak but he reached out and seizing mem's hand wrung it with an eloquence beyond words he seemed to be squeezing her heart with clinging hands there were five takes of this bit and mem began only now to understand the hazard she had incurred to comprehend how close she was to annihilation to the end of her days upon this beautiful world it came upon her like a confrontation of death what an unbelievable thing it was for all of being the most familiar thing in life the one experience that nobody could escape man animal plant as that tree had fallen so she would have lost her roots in the good earth as the telephone wires of the prostrate pole had gone dead so the thrill would have ebbed out of her nerves everything beautiful gracious voluptuous would have been denied her she would have been void even of the precious privilege of pain the old greeks joked about the simpleton the philosopher who had wanted to know how he looked when he was asleep and had held a mirror before him and shut his eyes but she had seen herself asleep on the screen and now she had seen herself marching into her grave the vision was intolerable to her it assailed her like a nightmare it drove her frantic to make the most of life to taste every one of its sweets its bitters its glories and shames each tang of existence to experience and to make others experience she must be quick about it for who could tell what moment would be the last for the sake of other people she must live at full speed from now on act many pictures briskly brilliantly hurriedly so that she should not waste a grain of the sand speeding through the hourglass as she watched the last of the takes her heart surged with anguish for that strange girl she was there struggling against the wind fighting her way out of a little inconvenience into destruction it seemed to her that she typified all girlkind all womanhood all humanhood passion swept love urged braving obstacles defying every restraint and stumbling on into the lightning into the lurking horror running blithely blindly into the ambush that every path prepares she was consumed with an impatience to begin a new picture at once and to be very busy with life and love beauty and delight and yet there is always an and yet the yets follow an incessant procession treading one another's heels and yet when tom holby after they had left the lot asked her to ride with him for a bit of air and swept her to the perfect opportunity of bliss her soul balked he was handsome brave magnetic chivalrous devoted he had leaped into danger to seize her out of it he bore in his cheek a scar that would mar him for life perhaps as his badge of courage his big racing car like a fleet stallion had galloped them far from the eyes of witnesses into a sunset of colossal tenderness with a sky flushed as delicately as a girl's cheek yet as huge as a universe they sped along the rim of the world with desert on one side and the whole pacific sea on the other the world was below them for their observation and they were concealed by distance and yet when tom holby told her he adored her and that she was adorable when he courted her with deference and meekness and pleaded for a little kindness her heart froze in her 
she could not even accept a proffered beatitude she looked at him and thought and said too many people love you tommy you belong to the public and you couldn't bring yourself down to really loving little me oh but i could i do he cried damn my public i don't care for anything but you she was not quite serious and not quite insincere when she answered but i haven't had my public yet and i love it i want it if i ever grow as tired of it as you have done of yours then we might see each other but just now the only love i can feel is acted love then let's have a rehearsal he suggested cynically but she shook her head and laughed she could not tell why she laughed but having tasted mirth she decided that was what she had chiefly missed in life and what she needed most her home had been nearly devoid of gaiety except of an infantile ecclesiastical sort her father had been one of those who could never think of christ as wearing any smile but one of pity or forgiveness a laughing messiah was incredible horrible and as her father's chief aim in life was to fill life with religion hilarity with its inevitable skepticism had no part at home since she had left her home on the most dismal of pilgrimages mem had given herself chiefly to the earnest the passionate emotions and now she felt like a desert suddenly dreaming of rain i want to laugh tommy she cried amuse me make me laugh but holby was no wit he had an abundance of wholesome fun in his nature and he roared when he was tickled but he was not a comedian a humorist or an inventor of risible material he shook his head and could not even think of a funny story at least of none that he dared tell mem he was as willing to escape from her in her present mood as she from him and he said there's the new charlie chaplin comedy we might get in let's try said mem i've just realized that what i'm really dying for is a good laugh lots of good wild laughs at i don't care what holby swung his car round and returned toward los angeles tommy said mem what is comedy what is it that makes a thing funny search me said holby i don't know neither do i mem pondered but i'm sick of all these crying scenes and emoting all over the place i want to be a comedian do you think i could be one i don't think so said holby with scientific candor you never made me laugh you don't laugh much no but i'm going to i think if i ever love anybody really it will be a great comedian do you know any comedians who aren't married tommy lots of em said holby a sense of humor keeps a man from getting married or staying married long mem laughed at that she did not know why perhaps because he had said it so dolefully perhaps because it was a sudden tipping over of something solemn she had spent her life getting ready for the holiness of matrimony she had made a wreck of her ideal and had dwelt in a hell of shame and remorse for the sacrilege and now tommy had implied that it wasn't so very sacred after all he had slipped a banana peel under a dismal ideal and it had hit the ground with a bump the whole world looked gayer to her as if someone had flashed on a light she hoped the automobile would not be wrecked before she had this huge laugh that was waiting for her and somewhere in a clown's uniform was waiting she was sure the man or the career that would illuminate all her existence a good laugher would be a good lover 
making people cry and educating them in the agonies of sympathy was a silly sort of ambition what fools people were to pay money to be tortured but to be made to laugh that was worth any price to make people laugh in the little while between the two glooms before birth and after death to love and live laughing that was to defy sorrow and to make a joke of fate end of chapter 47 recording by diana bovet